Hello and welcome to the Forge Church Catch-Up Podcast. We're delighted that you have chosen to click play on this podcast. Each Sunday, our hope and prayer is to provide practical teaching directed by God that ties into everyday life. We hope today's talk encourages you. It is true that every word counts. Whether you are playing Scrabble, whether you are writing a dissertation, uh, do you remember those days when you used to handwrite them and then have to try and count? Fortunately, uh, computers sort all of that uh, for you nowadays. Uh, whether you're selling a car online, you have to get the words down to the minimum so every word counts. Uh, whether it's talking to a loved one or whether it's talking to um, a friend or even a stranger, every word counts, which is great, but I just have a problem with that because my English is rubbish. And so at school, I didn't do particularly well uh, with uh, doing English language and English literature, because uh, I come from Suffolk, you see. And so I shoo them, I did. Yeah, see, that doesn't go down well within English lesson, lessons, does it? If you're watching online and don't come for Suffolk, I'll interpret another time. But I, I, it highlighted, it just highlighted to me um, a few years back that Becky Warnock and myself, Becky who's part of the staff team and I, uh, went to visit Will and Jenny Elphick. Uh, they're sitting just down here. Uh, and they were working out in Liberia at the time. And so we went out to see the work that they were doing. And uh, we went into one of the schools that uh, Jenny was doing uh, a lesson uh, with a bunch of primary school kids, but she was demonstrating uh, to uh, the teachers there how to to do a good lesson um, uh, for these uh, primary school age group. Uh, that was one of the things that Jenny was doing, was, was training uh, teachers uh, to teach well. And uh, she was busy doing this lesson, and it was an English lesson. And um, uh, it was about I and me and you and they and them uh, and uh, how the English language works. And then... As she was teaching it, she looked across at me and said, and Steve, Steve's now going to give us a sentence with you and me in the same sentence. And I utterly panicked, (laughs) utterly panicked. And I said, you and me can go outside. (laughs) And as soon as I said it, honestly, that is what I said. And I looked across at Jen, and her face just went down like that. Uh, And honestly, I died. I just died. Some of you, you're still working out, what is wrong with that? And I understand. I understand that. The English language, every word counts if they're in the right place, I think is the best way uh, to be able to uh, explain that. Do you know what? The English language has to be the most complicated language um, uh, that there is. Um, I found out that there are, in the Oxford Oxford English Dictionary, uh, one... 171,476 words. Uh, And that people, most, the average person knows about 50,000, and I'm not average. Okay, just to let you know uh, on that. But every word counts. And I guess for many of us, um, uh, there will be times where we really focus on what it is that we're saying, but there are other times when words slip out uh, and we don't mean to say them uh, and because either it's an inappropriate word, and it might well be an inappropriate four-letter word, or that we say something and it's just inappropriate for the environment. 
One of my friends, a man called Doug Barnett, uh, he was uh, an evangelist, which meant that he preached about Jesus all over the country and uh, around the world too. He was also uh, involved in a church, so uh, very, very kind of Christian family. And um, I remember him saying once that he was busy working on his car, and he was trying to undo a bolt uh, on the engine when the spanner slipped, and he really hit and hurt his hand. And he said that when he did that... An expletive came out, and what was unfortunate was that one of his little boys was standing next to him watching. And he said, and I looked round, and my little boy's jaw just dropped down. He had never heard his dad say anything like that. And he sprinted off into the kitchen to tell mum. <laughs> and then very quickly, he came back and he stood next to his dad and said, say it again, dad, say it again. <laughs> It's just brilliant, just brilliant. But those times happen, don't they, when the words just kind of slip out and we don't mean them to, uh, but it happens. Normally when it's under pressure, normally when we are either frustrated or we're angry or we're hurt in some way uh, or we're tired uh, and what somehow is hidden inside of us somehow just slips out uh, and makes an appearance uh, for others to hear. So have you ever said in your life, why did I say that? Of course we have. Because what's inside of us occasionally, if we're not got it all under control, can just slip out. Why does that happen? Well, do you know what? Jesus gave uh, an insight into this. He once said this. He says, what you say flows from what's in your heart. In other words, what's stored up deep within you and within me will eventually make its way out through our words. And words basically uh, just bring expression to our feelings, to our emotions, to our thoughts. It brings um, uh, an expression of our hurt and our anger and our fears. And it's why stuff will slip out at times that we don't mean it to. And, and while th this series is not focused on those kind of four-letter words... Because what we're doing is with this series, and it's just a short three-week series, we're asking the question, what other four-letter words, words that if they get inside of us, could actually change the way we react and the way that we relate to other people around us and how we see our lives. And so today is this. It's our four-letter word, which has already been uh, spoken about. It's the word love. Love is such a small word, but it has such a powerful effect. More songs have been written about love than about any other topic. Come on, just turn to the person next to you and say very quickly, what is your favorite love song? Because you will have one. Come on, just tell the person next to you, what is your favorite love song? What will it be? Okay, all right, that's enough, that's enough. Mine, I just want to let you know that as a result of today, mine is, I believe in a thing called love. I'm just hearing Ben hit those top notes today. I mean, that was, oh, that was music to my ears or something like that. Anyway, love. Love is the foundation of every strong family, every strong marriage, every strong fellowship. Love is, in fact, uh, the foundation for any kind of strong community that operates well together. And love is at the very heart 
of Jesus' teaching and of the Christian faith. And I, and I say that, and many of you here will know that. The problem is, is that love so often isn't the word that people would use for what church is or what the Christian faith is about. There is an unbelieving world who when they think of God, or certainly when they think of the church, love is not the word that comes to them. And that should break our hearts. Because love is at the very epicenter, at the very heart. It is the foundation of what Jesus spoke about for your life and for mine. And do you know what? We can come to church every week and we can sit and we can evaluate the talks and there might be something that's said within a talk uh, that we think, oh, that's really good. But I'll tell you that unless we do what it is that Jesus says, it makes no difference. It's just like a pot of paint in the garage. It's there, it's taking up space, but it makes no difference. Because it's got to be used. We've got to put it into practice. So what we're doing today is we're looking at what Jesus had to say and what a man called Paul had to say. There was a time where Jesus was with his disciples. It was just before he was um, uh, going to die and rise again and then leave them. And so he was giving warning to them. So therefore, what he was saying was going to be so central and so important. And uh, John, one of the disciples, records it this way. He says this, I will be with you only a little longer. This is Jesus speaking. And I told the Jewish leaders that you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So in other words, time's running out. So what I've got to say now, you need to hold on to. You need to hold on to this like nothing else. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. There it is. Fairly clear, fairly straightforward. It is the foundation of our faith. Our faith in Jesus. What do we have to do? We have to love one another. Now, Jesus said lots and lots of complicated things. There are some things which are really hard to understand. But this isn't. Jesus says, this is my command to you. You've got to love one another as I've loved you. Then you must love one another. In other words, you don't have to agree with each other. You don't have to be understood or you don't have to understand others. You don't have to be listened to. Your ideas don't have to go uh, uh, and be the ones that are chosen. None of that. What's really important, what you have to do though, what you have to do is to love one another. And then he goes on to say this, that your love for one another well, and I've just look, I've just highlighted it there. We'll prove to the world that you're my disciples. In other words, people won't recognize that you're followers of Jesus because you jump in a car and drive to church, or because you know the words of the songs that we sing, or, or that, um, uh, that you're part of a, a small group, that you've got a fish sticker on your car. That's not how people will know that you're followers of Jesus, Jesus says. The mark, the hallmark of being a follower of me, he says, is this four-letter word called love. We are to love one another. And he says this, the way that you treat each other, this, this is the understanding behind what Jesus is saying. The way that you treat each other and the way that you treat people who are not like you is going to be the hallmark of a Jesus follower. You can get everything else wrong, but you mustn't get this wrong. Because this is 
at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. This is profound. This has to shape your life and my life, especially if we want to be followers of Jesus. How do we know what love is? I want to know what love is. I want... No, I'm not going to do that anymore, that, but... um, Foreigner, just in case you're wondering. How do we know what love is? Well, Jesus gave the definition. Let's go back to it. Just as I have loved you. So when he was saying these words, Peter would have uh, been sitting there and listening uh, and thinking, just as Jesus has loved me, I was the not good enough person. I couldn't make it to become one of those religious leaders, one of those rabbis. I'd love to have done that. That's the, the pinnacle. But I wasn't good enough. And then Jesus came along and he chose me. And then there was the time when uh, there were uh, thousands of people and they needed feeding. And Jesus said to me, Peter, that I could go and uh, help to distribute the food. Uh, And the food was just um, uh, five loaves, two fishes. And Jesus did this miracle and I was part of the miracle. He included me. And he might be thinking that time where Jesus was doing that weird miracle of walking on the water. And I said, come on, Jesus, if that's you, can I have a go? And he says, yeah, come on. You try. And, and, and I had to go walking on the water. Peter was soon going to discover what it means to be forgiven after the biggest mistake that he made. The biggest blunder when he said, I don't know who Jesus is when Jesus was arrested. And there was him finding forgiveness and there was him being given a second chance. So Peter would know what that means, that just as I have loved you, Peter had never known a love like it. And I wonder how you, if you're a follower of Jesus, just as I have loved you, how would you describe God's Jesus' love for you? How has he demonstrated it? Just stop and think. How do you know that Jesus loves you? Because he says, just as I have loved you, you've got to love others. So you better know how he loves you. And love's right at the heart. And love is not just about an emotion, a gooey feeling, a feeling of, oh, isn't it lovely? At times, love has to be gritty. Love has to be tough. Love is hard. Love is hard to put into practice. And if you're someone who is still trying to discover about who God is and about the fact of, of, does God really love me? Does Jesus really love me? And all you have to do is you just have to go and look to see what Jesus has done for you. Through his death on the cross, through his dying in our place, that we can know forgiveness, that we can know a second chance. I am so glad that God gives second chances. That's been my experience time and time again. It's just that it becomes a third chance and a fourth and a fifth because God loves to give us second chances. And my experience is is that I know that God loves me because God has demonstrated his love to me in the person of Jesus. And in fact, Paul would write these words. He he would say that God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So when we become Christians and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, God plants his love in each one of us. And it's for us to be able to draw that love out and to express it towards the lives of those around us. Because we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, 
In the New Testament, you will find, uh, which is the second part of the Bible, you will find four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are accounts of Jesus' life while he was here on earth. And basically, the writers would record what Jesus said, uh, and uh, they've become part of what we know as the Bible. It's the library of books. Following on from uh, those four Gospels, those four accounts of Jesus' life, comes the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is telling what happens to these community of Jesus followers once Jesus um, uh, is risen from the dead and goes back to heaven. And he says, now, you be my people here on earth. And so the church starts, and it's the story of the church. And then after that, it comes a whole load of letters And a man called Paul is one of the people who writes many of the letters that you find in the New Testament. And what Paul does, Paul doesn't write anything new. What Paul does is he remembers what Jesus has said. He's listened to what Simon Peter has said of what Jesus said. And what he does is that he interprets what Jesus says and applies it for your life and for my life. He applies what Jesus has done for you and for me. That's what he does within these letters. And so he writes a letter to a church in Corinth. And what he does is he takes Jesus' words, what he knows of Jesus, of how Jesus has demonstrated his love for us. And then he writes these words. And if you've been to a wedding, and it could be at your wedding, you will have come across these words before. Because he writes this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love... I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, it would be me saying, if I'm the best communicator, if I'm the best storyteller, if I can be funny, and if I can grab people's attention, but I have no love, it is purely noise. Now, you might be thinking that already, but, but, that's, what, but that's what Paul is saying. It is purely noise. Because love has to be at the heart of it. He goes on to say this. If I give all, sorry, um, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. So I can be the best decision maker, the best problem solver, the best strategic thinker. I can get the best insight into a situation. And what Paul is saying is, Fanny, unless you love, it's nothing. You're nothing. Because it has to come out of a heart of love. Then he goes on to say this. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So you or I can be the most generous person in the world. We can go on trips abroad. We can build schools and hospitals with our money. Uh, we, We can do all kinds of extraordinary and extravagant things. And then he goes on. Basically, I could sell my body... As a slave, and you can use that money because that's how generous I am. And Paul says, with no love, you gain nothing. So what is he doing? He's just picking up on what Jesus said. The new command, love one another. And then what he does is he becomes really personal. And this is what I find really helpful because he paints a picture of what love is. Because if you were to write out what love is, love is, um, love is doing the washing up, maybe. Uh, that love is holding hands on a romantic walk. Uh, that love is going to a rugby batch with my best mates and going out for a beer afterwards. We could write down what our descriptions of what love is. But often we, just, um, we think of love as, a, as an experience or a feeling. 
And what Paul does is he flicks it around and he says, no, love is an action. Love is worked out. Love can't be a paint pot that's just put on the shelf. It has to be worked out. And so he says this, love is patient and love is kind. You will see that that that, that verse will just stay up for a few moments. He starts off by saying love is patient. Now, when Paul, Paul, if you ever read about Paul's life, he was a go-getter. He, 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 it's one of those people that would never stay still. He was always out onto the next kind of mission, the next big thing uh, to go and do. So do you think Paul was patient? I think it's extremely unlikely that he was. But he will have had to have learnt patience. Because otherwise, everything that he was doing lacked love and was worthless and pointless. I was trying to think of times when I've had to express patience and when I found it really hard. When the kids were little and it was time to go out, they would take forever to get ready because they would never want to put coats on. They'd want to finish off playing their games. They would, and as soon as you kind of got one ready, another one had kind of disappeared off to go and do something else. And by the time you grab, I tell you, it was so frustrating and if there are ever a time where under your breath there are four-letter words that want to come out, I'll tell you it's at times like that. Or when I'm driving, I'm in a bit of a rush because I might be just a few minutes late. And I think, and then I get behind an annoying person who is keeping to the speed limit. <laughs> Honestly. And so what do I do? There's something inside of me that I'm getting frustrated and angry and I can drive up closer and closer as if I'm going to nudge the car a bit further, a bit um, forward, a bit faster. What's going on? Is that loving? Is, is me getting utterly frustrated uh, with the kids when they were young? Is, is that loving? Or what about a queue at the supermarket uh, and there is someone who just seems to be taking ages? Shall I t- and a definition, this is a, not the, but a definition of patience is this. That I will adjust my speed and my pace to your pace rather than expecting you to adjust your pace to mine. That's patience because that's putting the other person before me. Let me ask you a question. Who do you need to be patient with? Is it a family member? Is it an elderly relative who frustrates the life out of you? Some of you are just looking at each other now. I I didn't mean that. (laughs) Is it a person at work who who is always just so arrogant and you feel like just blowing your top at them? Who is it that you need to demonstrate patience to? Because if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to be like Jesus. Because you've got to reflect him. And Jesus is so patient. I am so grateful that Jesus is so patient with me. Because, oh, if I were him, I'd have given up on me ages ago. But he doesn't. And nor has he done with you. And if God is patient with you, he says, be patient with others. Because it is an expression of love. He talks about kindness. He talks about that love does not envy or boast. Envy is one of those things that can just creep into our hearts when someone else does something well and we don't get recognised equally. I tell you, it can be so easy to kind of just feel really annoyed at them and that annoyance starts to build towards envy. You know, Emily was, was uh, great with her talk last week and I hear that from people and I kind of think, yeah, 
So I'll take a listen. And Emily was great, but... And we love to include the little but... Because if we include a little but, sorry, that sounds rude, doesn't it? But if you include a little but, um, uh, what you can do is you can then pull the other person down because they, it shouldn't go to their heads. Where does that apply to you? Where, where does envy start to creep in in your life? We have to conquer it. We have to say, envy, you do not have control. Jesus has control. Uh, and so my love is going to be demonstrated through not allowing envy or boastful or being proud to dominate in my life. It doesn't dishonor. It's not self-seeking. At work, do you ever find yourself getting involved in slagging off someone uh, that others are talking about? And it's usually a person that others dishonor. They don't honor them at all. And it's so easy just to get into those conversations rather than bringing honor to a person. I tell you, to love, oh, if only it was down to an emotion and a feeling, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? But it's not because it hits all the hard issues that we face in life. It's not self-seeking. Do you know what? Paul could point in another letter to Jesus who was not self-seeking. I love to be able to push myself forward, to be known. I, I, like, I like that. And, and yet Jesus models something different. Who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's, hmm, that's not self-seeking. He made himself nothing. By taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then God exalted him to the highest place. Do you see, the lower Jesus went, the higher God lifted him up. And then Jesus says, say, now you've seen that, you follow me. Don't push yourself forward. You push others forward. Don't be self-seeking. Don't dishonor others. And then he says, Don't, love is not easily angered and it keeps no records of wrong. Sometimes Sarah would say, you never clear up. And I go, give me five times. I always think that's a good one because she can never think of five times. So she said, I'll start writing a list. <laughs> Maybe not. Have you ever heard people say you can forgive and forget? Um, that's, that, that's rubbish. <laughs> you can't forgive and forget. Uh, people will often say it because they think that it comes from the Bible. Uh, because in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, um, Isaiah speaks about God blotting out our sins. And then he says, and he remembers them no more. And so it's not even the case that God forgets. It's that he chooses not to hold it against us. There's this big, big difference. So do you keep a record of wrongs? Is there someone who's hurt you and hurt you and hurt you? And so now, in a sense, you've made the list in your mind. That's not what love is. God calls us to something better. We, I can't believe how quickly time has gone. So I just want to move um, forward. There is a principle that a guy called Derry Northrop speaks about. He, it's a great line that he says. And I think this is a brilliant expression of love. He says, whenever you walk into a room, a situation or a conversation, does your presence say, here I am? Or does it say, there you are? Because there's a big difference 
between the two. And I think at the heart of it, what love does is says, there you are. Not here I am, but there you are. Because it's about putting everything into building up the person we're encountering. And although our natural inclination is to say, here I am as a type of person, I think Jesus exampled it brilliantly. So there was a blind man who called out to Jesus. And Jesus could have looked and said, here I am, but he doesn't. And if you read the account of Jesus with this blind man, what he does is he looks out to him and he says, there you are. There you are. And he brings the most miraculous healing. And he approaches a well uh, and there is a woman uh, who's there at midday. She's so ashamed of her lifestyle uh, that she's keeping away from other villagers. So she goes at midday and Jesus goes and he doesn't say, here I am. He just says, there you are. And he speaks words of life and of hope, which completely turns her life around. Jesus is walking and he's teaching people. And all of a sudden he stops and he says, who's touched me? And the disciples say, what? There's loads of people around. And then he looks and a lady comes forward who's touched because she so desperately wants to get healed. And he says, there you are. Not here I am, but there you are. And he allows a healing to take place. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas comes, he doesn't say, here I am. He says, there you are. Do what you need to do. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, it's not about here I am, everyone. It's about there you are. Because what I'm doing is not for me, it's for you. And then after Easter, the day that he rose again, he meets with his disciples in a room. And one of the disciples is missing, it's Thomas. And so he returns a week later and Thomas is in the room and Jesus scans round and he doesn't say, here I am. He looks around and says, ah, there you are. And he calls Thomas up and he says, Thomas, you're going to struggle to believe. You've, you've said that. You're going to struggle to believe that I'm alive. So come on, you put your hands in the nail prints of my hands and of my feet and of my side. Because Jesus lived not a here I am lifestyle. He lived a there you are. And his focus was on you, not on himself. It's on me. So what would it look like if your life, my life, became a reflection of that. So when you go to work, it's, there you are. I invest in you, it's not about me. I show patience to you, it's not about me. I'm not angry with you. I'm not going to harbour bitterness against you because it's not about me. It's, this, is, this is about me loving you. If we want people to know that we're followers of Jesus, if we want a community to be a community of people who are attractive, that the outside world would love to be part of, we just have to put into practice what Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. What does that look like for you tomorrow at work? What does that look like for you today? And maybe you first just have to answer the question, as Jesus has loved me, how has he done that? Write it down. Write a long list of how Jesus loves you. And then you just mirror it in how you love others. Let's stand. Oh, how you love us, Jesus.
You've demonstrated that. Lord, would you shape our hearts and our lives and our responses so when we get bumped, it's not four-letter words of expletives that pour out of us, but it's another attitude of love that gets demonstrated. Pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might love as you love. In Jesus' name. That's all for this week. Thanks once again for joining us. We'd love to keep the conversation going, so please check us out on social media at Forge Church and check out our website, forgechurch.com, where you can give financially, watch new content and see any details of events we have going on here at The Forge. See you next week.